With all that, now we can start Genesis chapter 40. And our title tonight is Judgment Day. You know, sometimes I give the title early, sometimes I hold it back from you and let you guess what it might be. You'll see why pretty quick it's going to be Judgment Day. But last week, if you were here last week, um, chapter 39, at the very end of it, we learned that Joseph, and it's a famous story, a lot of us already know it, he was put in prison because of false accusations by Potiphar's wife. Remember, she grabbed his cloak and he ran away and then she made up all these false charges. But the, the very last line of that chapter, I want to read it. Here's what it says. The Lord was with Joseph and made him successful in all, all that he did. All even includes prison, which is what we'll see tonight. So that's where the story ended. Now we're going to skip over to 40 verse 1, and it picks up the kind of second phase of this prison story. Here's what it says. Sometime later, we don't know exactly how long, just sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, which would be the Pharaoh, by the way, offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh, now they're calling him Pharaoh in verse 2, was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. So he put them in custody, and then the house of the captain of the guard, here's the key, in the same prison where Joseph was confined. So we're not told in Scripture exactly why these two men were imprisoned, but most Bible scholars and historians believe likely it was over a poisoning, a poisoning attempt. And one of them kind of was behind it, and they weren't sure who was behind it. And you've all seen those old movies, you know, where there's a taster and a, somebody tastes the food, somebody tastes the drink. That likely was part of their job also. And they were also the, the baker and, the, and the, the one that brought the cup. So they're arrested over what most people think is a poisoning attempt. But I think, really, this is my opinion, the real reason they're getting arrested, God's going to use them as part of Joseph's redemption plan. In other words, he didn't cause them to try to poison the Pharaoh, but he's going to use that. We all know God uses all kind of miraculous ways, and we'll see that in a second, to do his work. And I think he's going to use this story to get Joseph closer to freedom. It's a rescue plan is how I kind of see it. Which brings up our first main point if we're taking notes. God works in mysterious ways, doesn't he? Ways sometimes we never imagine, like in our story tonight, but he'll use what I would call life's ordinary moments, just day-to-day -day life for us, to produce a miraculous result. Like how things are already lining up with these two guys getting arrested, and they just coincidentally end up right with Joseph. And we'll see how that plays out as we keep reading. So verse 4. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. And I'm going to stop right there for a second. So look what God's already arranged. Remember when Joseph was taken by those Ishmaelite traders? They coincidentally, and there's no coincidence with God. I'm being kind of silly when I do that, by the way. Don't you like doing those fake quotes sometime anyway? I never get to do those unless I'm up here, so this is my one chance. So you've got to humor me. Those Ishmaelite traders took him right to Potiphar's house so God could use that interaction. Well, now, coincidence number two, if you believe in such a thing, this same captain is going to assign these two prisoners to Joseph to attend to. Why? Well, God is at work. He's going to arrange everything so Joseph ends up in the perfect place at the perfect time which is Pharaoh's court to, to kind of talk to Pharaoh face-to-face. -face. And once again, we know the story. We'll get there next week. But um, 
he's going to have a role to play tonight too, um, Joseph. So let's see how this story sets up. Let's read the rest of verse 4. After they had been in custody some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, they had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. So scripture doesn't tell us if these two guys had ever dreamed like that before, but let's go back a few chapters. When Joseph was a boy, remember he went and talked to his brothers in the field. What did they say when they saw him coming? Here comes that dreamer. He was known to be the dreamer, but he was also known to interpret, remember, his own dreams. And both Pastor Dave Fokerts and I said, both of us, that we think he shouldn't have probably shared those dreams with his brother. But he did, and it kind of seemed a little prideful, got him in trouble, got him thrown in a pit, got him sold into slavery. But once again, God can use even that to glorify his name. So he's known for interpreting dreams, is my real point. That'll be a key factor tonight. Let's keep reading, verse 6. When Joseph came to them the next morning, these two guys, he saw they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him, that would be the two of them, why do you look so sad today? So let's think about Joseph's situation, though. He's in prison, as we heard last week from Pastor Dave, under false pretenses. He was arrested for doing nothing wrong. So is he complaining and, you know, causing a huge ruckus about his false imprisonment? No. Is he protesting and trying to right this terrible wrong in his own life? No. Look what he's doing. He's focused on those two guys. Why do you look so sad? He's more concerned with their welfare than his own. He's worried about their sadness, which kind of reminds me of a great verse out of Philippians. Let's look at that together on the screen. Philippians 2. Here's what it says. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. This is the part that applies to the story, I think. Rather, in humility, value others. Joseph is valuing their sadness above yourselves. Not looking to your own interest, even when you're falsely imprisoned, I would put in parentheses, but each of you to the interest of others. Joseph is concerned with their welfare, not his own, even though he's been wrongly imprisoned. And it's almost certain that one of these guys is guilty, by the way, and we'll see that as the story plays out. But he's worried about them. But now they're going to answer. Why are you sad? Verse 8, they kind of give him an answer. We both had dreams, they answered. But there's no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. But notice how he worded that. What Joseph could have said if he was prideful. So I think, remember I made the case if you were here about a month ago, when he was younger, maybe he was a little prideful. That's why he went and bragged to his brothers they were going to bow down to him. He could have said, I can interpret your dreams. Because he does apparently have that gift from God. No. How did he say? God can interpret your dreams. He didn't even say, God will use me to interpret your dreams. He gave all the glory straight to God where it belongs, which is our second thing to write down. God gives all of us spiritual gifts. We just saw the worship team using the gift that I don't have, playing instruments and singing. All of us have gifts. They're all equal in God's eyes. Doesn't matter if you're on worship or you're the one teaching here tonight like me. You're in the parking lot. You're an usher. You're a greeter. You're behind the scenes making snack kits for kids. We all have a gift. But we have to all point the recognition for that gift, no matter what our gift is, 
back to God, just like Joseph is doing. Because God gets all the glory, doesn't he? If we try to take the glory, God will sort of take his hand off of us and say, okay, go ahead. Do that on your own power. See how that works out for you, Dave. And it won't end well. We all know that answer. So back to the story, verse 9. So the chief cupbearer, he'll go first, he told Joseph his dream. He said to him, in my dream, I saw a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, I squeezed them into Pharaoh's cups, and put the cup in his hand. So they're calling it a dream. It's likely more like a vision because it was a specific thing given to him Maybe for the first time ever, we don't know, but God's going to use it either way. But we'll get to Joseph's interpretation of this in a second, but I want to point out a couple things first. All dreams aren't prophetic. Just because these guys in this story had one doesn't mean when I go home tonight I'm going to have one, or you either. It's not very often that God does this. Most of the time, it's a normal dream. Or if I go home and eat too much pizza, it might be a nightmare. Either way, it's not a vision from the Lord. And here's what's even more rare, what Joseph is doing. The interpretation of a dream, you know, God might speak to us in a dream maybe. That can happen, but it's way less likely one of us would have the gift to interpret a dream. God can do that, but it's a special gift that we only see every now and then at rare moments, like the one we're reading about. Some people, though, claim to have that gift, and, and many of them, I would even say in my mind, in my opinion, most of them would be what I would call a false prophet. There's a great verse in Jeremiah about that, by the way, just so you don't think I'm making all this up. Let's look at it. Let's check the word. I have heard what the prophets say who prophesy lies in my name. This is God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah. They say, these false prophets, I had a dream. I had a dream. And they're trying to say it's from God. How long will this behavior continue in the hearts of these lying prophets? God's calling them a liar who prophesied the delusions of their own minds. So they're making things up. They don't really have a vision. They're just claiming to so they get some attention and notoriety. They're really attention-seeking. Even in our modern era, not at this church, because we don't do such a thing, but on TV you might see things like that. Change the channel, turn it off. Not a good thing. Verse 12. Now Joseph is going to interpret what the cupbearer dreamed. This is what it means. Your dream, in other words. Joseph said to him, the three branches are three days. So he is being laser specific right here. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position. And you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand just as you used to when you were his cupbearer. So he's being really specific, a three-day timeline. You're going back to your old job. You'll be right where you were, fully restored. So that's a pretty bold prediction, would you say? So in other words, on day four, they're going to know if Joseph is a false prophet or not. It will be tested severely in three days. As we know, Joseph will pass. But that's the key for us to remember. When God speaks like this, or in a prophetic word, it's a specific thing. God does not exist in generalities. He doesn't talk in general, vague terms. 
And here's how that would apply, by the way, to these false prophets, and even including people. You know, have you ever heard somebody say, I have a prophetic word, or I have this, you know, I can interpret tongues, for example, something like that? Because I've kind of heard somebody say that before, and here's what they said, something more like this. God is going to bring you an unexpected blessing. Well, I could go down every row and point at every one of you and say that. Or maybe they'll say, God is going to open a door of opportunity. Once again, I could go down every row and tell every one of you that. That's not specific. That's very vague in a general term. In other words, how would you know if I was right or not? There was no timeline on it. And something might happen to you in like a month, a week, or a year from now. Oh, Dave said that. Well, yeah, that was about the vaguest thing I could come up with. And so that is not how God operates. A prophetic word is specific. It's for the moment. And it it really encourages or convicts sometimes the person it's for. And it's really more specific than these vague things. And there's a lot of more vagueness I could go down the road on. So be careful if you get this vague word of faith because... It could be in the territory of a false word or a false prophet. So be careful. Um, Back to our text, verse 14. So now he's told him what the dream said. He's going to give him a little instruction in verse 14. But when all goes well with you, and he's convinced it's going to, he's already told him, you'll be back in three days. Remember me. Remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of here. Get me out of this prison. So he's so confident his you know, dream interpretation is valid and correct, he's adding a request. Get me out of here when you get out of here. Then he's going to add, you know, he hadn't already made the point. He's not been complaining. He's not protesting all this false imprisonment. Probably already been there for a while, by the way. He is going to add in verse 15 just kind of a general description for this cupbearer so he'll know what he's going to tell Pharaoh. He says, I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I've done nothing wrong. I've done nothing to deserve to be put in this dungeon. Joseph is in a trial, but he's not raging about his trial. He's not complaining about his trial. You know, there's a a tough verse in James, and it's tough for me anyway, and it's probably tough for you once we look at it on the screen. It says we should have joy in a trial. And really, I would make the case, that's not really natural, is it, to be joyful? Only God can do that in our hearts. He has to help us be joyful, but it's an instruction. It's in his word. We're supposed to be joyful, and we'll see why in this verse. Let's read it. Consider it pure joy. In other words, be joyful, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith, it'll build your faith, produces perseverance. But not just build it, look what it says after that. Let perseverance finish its work, and here's the two things we're shooting for. So it will work on us to become mature and complete in our faith and not lacking anything. So the trial should be joyful because it's building us. We see it when we're in it sometimes as a great dilemma, it's a hindrance, it's a terrible thing. James says you're looking at it wrong. Be joyful because it's going to stretch you and grow you. God will see you through, and your faith will be stronger. In other words, you'll learn to trust God more when he sees you to the other side. So that's a challenge in a way for me, for you likely. You know, we got to be more joyful when we're in a trial. And I have friends of mine that are great examples of that. I think I mentioned a week or two ago about a friend of mine that was diagnosed with cancer he ended up passing away, and he was joyful every time I saw him. 
He was a perfect example, better than I do at it. He was joyful even knowing he was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. So we have to ask God, though. That's the only way we can get through and be joyful in something like that is, Lord, I can't do this, and just pray, Holy Spirit, help me be joyful in this trial, and then help me grow. Help me get some value by growing my faith in this thing. Verse 16, when the chief baker, the other guy, in other words, saw that Joseph had given a favorable interpretation, he said to Joseph, I had a dream too. Now he wants that favorable interpretation. Not so fast. I had, a, I had a dream. On my head were three baskets of bread, another three. In the top basket were all kind of baked goods for Pharaoh, and he was the baker, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. So he got excited when he heard the, his friend, probably his friend anyway, was going to be restored to his former place. He's thinking he's going to get the same interpretation. And in a way, as I studied this, um, something kind of dawned on me. These two guys are a great picture of our world, our current world. And here's why. The cupbearer, we already read, he got you know, forgiven and restored. He's a picture of us. He's a picture of the Christ followers, the believers, those that are following Jesus. Here's why. The cupbearer and us, all of you, we're all Christ followers, I hope. If not, come down and see me and we'll fix that at the end. We're all charged with sin, a crime, but both of us, us and the cupbearer, we have been judged innocent. We're not guilty, and we were guilty, by the way. Jesus just paid the price for us. In the story, the cupbearer is innocent. So both are judged as innocent, which brings up our next point before I continue on this rabbit trail for a second. We're all guilty of sin, aren't we? All of us, me, you, everybody, even every Christ follower, but... Because of Jesus, God sees us. We're judged. Judgment's a, a, a word tonight. We're going to keep judging all night long. We're judged as being innocent. Not to each other. In God's eyes, we are literally innocent, like we never sinned to start with. But here's the problem, and I said it's like the world. The world hears that, and they're more like the baker, by the way. The world hears how Christians get to go to heaven, they go to paradise. Some of them say, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in heaven. But somehow our world is convinced they're going to paradise too. They think all good people go to paradise. Haven't you ever heard that one? And just like the baker in our story, they assume everybody gets this great report. Yeah, we, didn't, we, we, we weren't very good people, but you know, God's very forgiving if there is such a guy. Either way, I don't think, I'll just go to dust, I'll go to paradise. They all have some kind of crazy belief. God's word says it a little different, doesn't it? Let's look at a, a psalm on the screen. This is a, sums it up really quick and short. He, God, is coming to judge the earth. That means the entire earth, believers and unbelievers. And we'll get to that in a minute. He will judge the world with justice, fairness. He doesn't falsely accuse. And the nations will be judged with his truth. So everyone gets judged, even believers, and we'll get to that in a minute. But the world thinks they're going to somehow escape this judgment like this baker. Because this baker in our story, he's really hoping once again to get a report like the cupbearer. He, he thinks somehow that guy got a great story, so everybody gets a good report. And that's kind of what our world thinks about paradise. 
let's see what Joseph tells him his dream means, because he hasn't even really heard what he gets yet. Here's what Joseph is going to tell him in verse 18. This is what your dream means. The three baskets are three days, same three. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head, impale your body on a pole, and the birds will eat away your flesh. Not so much the same interpretation, is it? That one's a little scary, and he's probably freaking out when he heard this. Because the judgment is really, you're going to be beheaded and disgraced. Because when they put your body on a pole in those days and the birds ate your flesh, that was hugely disgraceful to your family, to everybody that saw it. You'd be at the city gate likely when that happened. And he'll be not just judged and killed, he'll be disgraced in death. Here's what a real famous theologian said about these, this section. Um, and he was a famous pastor in a big Presbyterian church in Philadelphia. And he was the pastor from 1968 to 2000. Maybe you'll know his name when it's on screen. James Montgomery Boyce. Here's what he said. Many pastors, that's what that many means. Many pastors, many churches <clears throat> are willing to preach the cupbearer sermon, the good part, but are unwilling to preach the baker sermon. The judgment, the, com- the condemnation, the eternal punishment phase. Is that what we do at Calvary? Nope. I heard a nope. You were correct. Calvary teaches the whole word of God. We'll teach the good stuff, and we all get excited and love it, but we don't dodge the hard stuff. The judgment verses. I've already used a couple tonight. I'm going to use a few more coming up. If you teach the entire Word of God like we do, you can't go wrong. We don't have to come up with our own you know, interpretation. We don't have to go down these crazy other rabbit trails and make it a bunch of personal stories with two verses. But we don't dodge the tough stuff. And we're not going to, by the way. We stand on God's Word. It's His truth. And see, as we've been going through Genesis, if you've been here much, you've heard me talk about some crazy stories up here, hadn't you? We don't skip those chapters. You know, the last time I taught it was a crazy chapter. You know, I mean, called it like a Jerry Springer show in some ways. There's some funky stuff, but it's all put there for a reason. And so if we were to skip things, we wouldn't be getting what God wants us to know. He wants to warn us. Yes, there's judgment verses, and we're going to see some more tonight, but they're there for our benefit. So why would we ever want to dodge those? We'd be hiding from God's truth if we did. Back to our story, verse 20. Now, the third day was Pharaoh's birthday, and he gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads, and and let me explain that one. That doesn't mean he cut them off. He brought them in more like for a trial, or they have to come now before Pharaoh, because only Joseph has interpreted these dreams. Now they're going to come before Pharaoh, and he's going to kind of see what happened and, and judge them himself. So he lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of the officials. Imagine what this baker's thinking, though. So the cupbearer got the great report. You're going to be looked at, judged as innocent, and restored to your position. The baker, even though Joseph told him the bad dream of birds picking his flesh to pieces, he's probably still hoping, man, that Joseph guy, I really hope he's wrong. I hope I get to Pharaoh and he forgives me too. Because he's probably optimistic like our world is. Remember I said he's a picture of our world. But likely, in my mind anyway, he probably knows he's guilty. 
Because at least in my opinion, he probably did have something to do with this poisoning attempt. Otherwise, why would God judge him as guilty? God didn't make mistakes. If he gets killed and eaten by birds, that means he did something. Otherwise, God would not allow that to happen. But he's going before Pharaoh. Picture once again of our world going before God at the end times. They know they're going to be judged. They're hoping for a great outcome, but knowing in their heart they never followed, never believed, never had one inkling of being a Christian. They're just somehow thinking, maybe I'll escape his judgment. Not so much. Well, there's two types of judgment in Scripture, and we're going to cover them tonight because this is a great story to kind of lay the groundwork for that. I'm not going to read the verse, but in Matthew 25, there's a story. Remember, it says God will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. But really, the judgment for unbelievers we call in Scripture the great white throne judgment. We covered that back when we covered Revelation. I know a lot of you probably weren't here. So we're going to do a deep dive on the screen. You can turn to it if you want, but all the verses will be on the screen in Revelation. Revelation chapter 20. This is the great white throne judgment, and you see why, because it's in the first sentence. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him, that would be God, him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence. They just disappeared from God. And there was no place for them. This is end times. This is revelation. Keep that in mind. And I saw the dead, all the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened. So there's two books, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the book, in the first book. Next verse. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. More on that in a minute. Each, here's the key though, each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death, the, the real final death. Look at verse 15. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was also thrown in the lake of fire. So this is the judgment unbelievers go to. This is the baker's judgment that James Boyce said a lot of people don't want to talk about. Because it is kind of harsh in a way, but God has given these people chance after chance after chance, just like he gave a lot of us, to follow Jesus, to repent, to get on the right team, as I put it sometime. They have chosen not to. They're going to be like the baker in the lake of fire. And it's not really a trial. Some people almost can, if you read those verses, it sounds like a trial. No, it's not a trial at all. You've already been judged because you didn't accept Jesus. It's a sentencing, sentencing phase, not a trial phase. You're already guilty. And by the way, Scripture tells us in other verses, this lake of fire was only created for Satan and his demons. But unbelievers who have consistently and continually rejected Jesus... Go there with them. It was never designed for us. We have a much better judgment I'll get to in a second, but we have to believe in Jesus. But let's look at some of those terms we just saw in that verse. I have another slide for us, because it can be really confusing even to me. Because all these words are Greek, they're Hebrew, they can sometimes interchange. Sheol, you'll see it in the Bible a lot. That's a Hebrew word, and it really means the grave or death. It's kind of a general term. We see the word Hades and we think hell, 
And so it's a Greek word that really translated into English as this the world beyond. After you die, you go to this world beyond. In, Rela- in Revelation, though, it's usually called the abyss, sometimes the bottomless pit. And they're all in some ways a little interchangeable, but the real one is the lake of fire. That's Gehenna, which is a Greek word. It was a place outside Jerusalem. If you go um, on one of our trips every year, it's the valley outside of the city. It's not like it used to be. In those days, it was this kind of trash pit, but it was a kind of also like a bottomless pit-looking thing. And it was smoldering, it was on fire, and it looked like hell to them, so they called it Gehenna. In English, Gehenna translates to hell, which is where we get our word for hell. But really in Revelation, this is what we we see as the lake of fire. It's the final destination. These other two, Sheol and Hades, is where the dead are before they're judged. The lake of fire is your final terrible end-time destination. Just like all of us go to paradise forever for all of eternity, unbelievers go to the lake of fire and they're in pain and misery. And the biggest pain of all, I think, they're separated from God. And here's, this part is kind of my opinion, by the way, but um, I think probably what happens in my mind, one of their greatest punishments is they'll probably be able to relive every moment one of us or somebody told them about Jesus. Think what a terrible regret that would be if you were in punished, you know, it's a physical punishment. It talks about fire and and terrible things that you don't even want to read about. But think of the regret you would have and you would almost in your mind, like an endless loop, that person tried. My friend, my family, my brother, my sister, some of you, they told me about Jesus. Why didn't I do it? For all eternity. In some ways, that mental punishment might almost be equal to or worse than physical. Which brings up our judgment. There is a believer's judgment, but it's really judging what we did, what we did for the Lord here on earth. You know, other verses talk about we get crowns or rewards in heaven. That's what our judgment is. And there's a great verse in 2 Corinthians. I think it'll be on the screen, but I'll read it. It says, we must all, this is us, appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So not the great white throne judgment, that's for unbelievers. We go before this judgment, the Bema seat. Let's look at a different verse, though, out of 1 Corinthians. This one explains kind of what it's about for us. On judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder, I'm the builder, you're the builder, we're the builders, has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any real, spiritual, heavenly value. If the work survives, in other words, if it passes the test, the builder will receive a reward, a crown, as other verses call it. But look at the next verse. If, but if, the work is burned up, the builder, me and you, will suffer great loss. More on that in a second. The builder will be saved, so we'll make it into heaven. We, we don't lose our salvation. This is not a salvation judgment, just so we're clear. But look what it says. Like some, you'll make it in like somebody barely escaping through a wall of flames. So you'll get into heaven, but the flames of hell will be licking at your backside. How would I lose all my work like that? I'll pick on myself tonight. If I was up here 
teaching tonight, that would be probably in God's eyes considered a work, a work for him, because I'm supposed to be explaining his word, helping you understand it better, helping myself grow as I study it and learn it better. But if I'm doing it with the wrong motive, for example, if I really didn't care about helping you learn, I was just up here to say, look at me, I want to be on the stage tonight, shine that big spotlight on me just right, guys. It would be attention-seeking, in other words, serving for the wrong reason. That work would get burnt to pieces, and I would still beacon into heaven, but have nothing to show for it. And that goes for all of our volunteer work. Anything we do for God has to be with the, you know, Scripture's clear on motive. It's all about the heart and motive. What is our motivation? Is it to look good, to be prideful, to have everybody look at us, notice me? Those works don't make it. That's what that verse is about. We all get judged, believers and unbelievers. The unbelievers is a very bad one. Ours is really a positive thing, but it's also got a warning there. Make sure you're serving and giving and doing things for the Lord, for the Lord, not for selfish reasons. Whatever those might be. I could give a long list. I just picked on the one about look at me because I'm up here right now and you're looking at me. If I do that, I know the verses, trust me, because I've studied them, I will be judged harshly for that. So it's really a, a warning from God, serve me, but serve me in the right way, with the right motivation, and I'll reward you. That should be an encouragement, not a discouragement, but it also keeps us in balance, doesn't it? We can't be serving for the wrong reasons in any area. And you can apply that, not just, it's not just for pastor teachers, it's, you know, what if you're, well, I'll just pick on some of the guest services people because they're all my friends. What if they were serving you tonight just so they could feel prideful about being an usher and greeter and walking people down the aisle and showing you where to go? Look at me, I got this cool badge on, I got my picture on it. That work might get burned up. Anything we do that's bad motivation, God is not happy. And, and really, he goes over and over about pride. Pride is the number one thing I think that God hates. Any sort of pride in our heart has got to get out of there and be removed, or else God will burn it up in the end anyway, and it will be like I did all that work for nothing. And I'll barely make it in the door with flames burning me up on the backside. We don't want to be that person, do we? So let's just make sure, our, we'll pray at the end tonight, that our motive is pure, our hearts are clean, and we're serving God because we love him. That should be our motivation. I shouldn't be up here to get any attention. I should be up here because I love the Lord and want to communicate his word truthfully as best I can. We want to grow deeper, not grow prideful and, and self-centered. So off my soapbox, back to our text. Verse 21. But does that make sense, the two judgments? So we all get judged. One for unbelievers, this baker, one for believers, Christ followers, which is the cupbearer. Verse 21, let's see the, what happens. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that once he put the cup in the, once again he put the cup in Pharaoh's hand. So part one of Joseph's prophetic word has happened. He is an accurate dream-interpreting prophet. Verse 22, uh-oh, but he impaled the chief baker just as Joseph had said in his interpretation. So that's why I believe he's guilty. Otherwise, God would not let him be impaled. 
He likely was the one behind some sort of poison attempt, I think. Which brings up our, our fourth point, if you're taking notes tonight. God's Word is encouraging. Isn't God's Word encouraging to you? I love just reading, studying, learning more. But it's also corrective because, you know, let's be honest, I need correction. Pastor Dave does a great job at that, by the way. We all need correcting. God has plenty of warnings in here about correction and judgment. And once again, here at Calvary, we don't dodge those. It's for our benefit. When we get corrected by our boss, by our, our leader, our pastor, our elders, it's to help us grow. And they see something in maybe in me or you, whoever's getting corrected, that needs to improve. It's okay. Nobody's perfect. Jesus is perfect, but none of us are Jesus. Correction is a, a tool to help us, not harm us. So we have to heed these warnings in Scripture about judgment so we get to heaven and our crowns don't get burnt up on the way in. But remember Joseph told the, the cupbearer, whatever you do, tell Pharaoh I'm innocent, help me out, get me out of here. Let's see in verse 23 if he does that. We already know he doesn't because you know the story. The chief cupbearer, verse 23, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. He was likely self-centered, worried about himself. He forgot about Joseph. I'm out of here. I don't even remember that guy that you know, did my dream all those months and years ago, whatever it would have been, weeks, days, who knows. So now Joseph's, what I would call his window of opportunity, has closed through this cupbearer. He'll have to work another angle now, or God will, not necessarily Joseph. But in our next chapter next week, um, Pastor Bob Russell is going to be here. He's going to teach the next chapter, and we're going to learn. I'm going to cheat and tell you one thing Bob's going to tell us. We'll learn that Joseph is going to be in prison and forgotten, just totally forgotten about, for two more years. Two whole years will go by before his next window of opportunity opens. Now, in Scripture, we, it's never exactly told to us how many years he was in prison. But here's what we do know. From the time he was sold by his brothers to Potiphar to the time he goes before Pharaoh himself, when he gets released, sort of, that is a 13-year period. So from the time of Potiphar, when he first got there, to the time he goes to Pharaoh and gets released from prison is 13. So my point is, likely he was in prison quite a while. We're just not told how long he was in Potiphar's house before that whole Potiphar's wife coming after him thing happened. But I think it's going to be clear. It's already being clear tonight, I think, to us, at least in my mind. And it's going to be more clear as we go through Joseph's story more. Think about Joseph's character. Does he ever waver? Does he ever gripe and complain? He, he just pointed out in our story tonight, hey, talk to Pharaoh for me. I'm in prison wrongly, but he's not going crazy about it. He's not throwing a fit. He's not harsh and complaining and griping and all terrible. He's concerned with the needs of others, their sadness, remember. So his character is almost exemplary. You know, there's very few tiny things. Maybe when he was a boy, that early dream might have been a little prideful. Other than that, his life is like a picture of what we want to be. In a trial of maybe 13 years almost long, at least in my mind, 10 or 11 of it might have been in prison. Who knows? He just... Still Joseph, didn't let it change him, didn't let it discourage him. He still, he never forgot that God is God. He doesn't blame God for this false imprisonment. He's not being negative, it doesn't look like. 
So we should model that. You know, in a trial, even Christians sometimes, especially if they're kind of newer or weaker in their faith, they're not been doing this a long time, when any kind of adversity comes in their life, and we all have adversity, don't we? They start to struggle. Their faith starts wavering. They're kind of like, I didn't do anything wrong. Why me? Why is all this happening? Poor me. And maybe even their faith starts to slip. I can, and as I was writing this, I even thought about a couple of friends of mine that used to be even here at this church, and they had a pretty, pretty tough trial in their life. One of them was, it was their spouse, and um, they kind of lost their faith. And far as I know, I've tried to talk to them. They're not even going to church anywhere. They seem to be kind of far from God. I've tried to encourage them. I've prayed for them, and, and they just really don't want anything to do with God. They're mad at God over the trial in their life because they begin to have a couple of questions. Why me? I, I'm not doing anything wrong, God. They must not have read the Job story very well. And then they begin to doubt almost, Lord, will this ever end? And they don't mean to sort of drift away, but they just sort of lose their hope gradually. They start questioning God. And so this is kind of our warning tonight. Don't let that be us, even in our trial. And I'm sure in this size of a crowd in this room and watching online, many of you are in a trial. Great job because you're here listening to God's word and God's promises let him see you through it. But as we get ready to close, I want to kind of cover four quick ways to have joy in a trial. Remember that verse about joy in a trial? That's hard, super hard. So let's look at some practical ways we can do that. Always have a thankful heart. Even in the trial, say, Lord, I don't understand what's happening, but I'm so thankful that you saved me, that you died for me. I don't really understand what's going on but I'm remaining thankful for my salvation. I know where I'm going. We can all be thankful for that, can't we? For our eternal destination. Then we have to trust God. Trust what his word says. Trust his promises. Trust that he'll see us through it. And even if somehow we happen to pass away, we would go to be with him even quicker. It's kind of like we're going to see him even sooner if we did pass away. So we have to just trust God that he has our best interests at heart even in those trials. Then, this one can get tough, praise God in the middle of a trial, in the trial. Just praise God. Just think about the things God did in your past even that was wonderful and awesome. In a trial, that can be what kind of encourages you, I'll get through this. This one's tough, but look what God did in my past. I remember how good he was to me I know he'll be good again. I trust that he's going to do what he said, and he'll get you through that dry spell. It's okay to have a dry spell. We all have them. But don't let the dry spell turn into a desert where you just lose all hope. Then finally, here's, here's probably the best one, I think. Keep our focus on God. If we start looking at our circumstances and worry about everything that's happening, It'll consume our mind and we'll get anxious, we'll get fearful, we'll get afraid because trials are tough, let's be real. But if that's all we think about, this negativity is like an endless loop. It'll just cycle and keep feeding and feeding itself like a monster and then we become this negative, bitter person that we never intended. If we focus on God, focus on his promises, That'll keep us from over-focusing on our current terrible trial and thing we're in. Because we are in those things. Even as believers, God never promises we won't have one. 
what he promises, I'll see you through it. So as we close, let's just pray for that. But once again, if you don't know Jesus, if you've never made that commitment, after we end tonight, you just come down here. Let's pray. Let's, let's just pray together that you start following Jesus. Don't go to the great white throne judgment. Don't leave here tonight with that as your judgment. Leave here tonight with the Bema seat, the Christian, the believer judgment. That's the one we all want to go to. But let's just pray that we stay strong in our trials. Lord, tonight we love you and we trust you. We don't always understand, Father, what kind of trial we're in, why it's happening. But Lord, neither did Job, and he did nothing wrong. Sometimes we're the ones that did nothing wrong. But Lord, let us never let our hope and our faith in you waver. Let us believe your promises that you'll see us through this. And Lord, send your Holy Spirit. Help us focus on you, not our trial, because we're just weak human beings. We're just people, Lord. We're not perfect. We need the Holy Spirit's help to see us through these trials of life. And Lord, let us just finish well, enter heaven with our, our crowns and our works intact. Let us serve you with love and wholeheartedness, with just a humility that's always given you all the glory. Lord, we love you. We thank you for saving us from our own sin that we were destined to be judged for. You paid the price. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for saving us. In your name we pray. Amen. See you this weekend or next Wednesday.